Ever wondered what it would be like to sit next to William Shakespeare on an international flight? Today's guest has. He even wrote a poem about it. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Billy Collins is one of America's most well-known poets. He served as U.S. Poet Laureate from 2001 to 2003. His poetry collections frequently show up on bestseller lists. And how often can you say that about poetry? His popular readings, three of which we've been lucky to host at the Folger, are warm and laughter-filled affairs. In Collins' poem, The Bard in Flight, he imagines finding himself on an airplane sitting next to a time-traveling Shakespeare. In Collins' telling, Shakespeare is gobsmacked by the technology of flight, but also mesmerized by the jazz playing on Collins' headphones. It's a humane, gently irreverent poem, which is par for the course with Billy Collins. For many years, Collins taught English to undergraduates at Lehman College of the City University of New York. In the classroom, he tried to make poetry less intimidating by reminding his students that the writers they studied were once living people like them. In his poetry, Collins tends to begin with the ordinary stuff of life, cooking, listening to the radio, going for a walk, But often, his poems go off from there in unexpected directions, making surprising connections. In this wide-ranging interview, Collins talks about humanizing Shakespeare and other literary titans. He also talks in depth about his own work and inspirations. And he reads from his newest collection, Musical Tables. Here's Billy Collins as interviewed by Barbara Bogave. We're going to get to some of the poems in your new book. But first, since we're a Shakespeare podcast, would you mind if we start with one of your Shakespeare-y pieces? And perhaps you could read for us The Bard in Flight? I'd be happy to. The Bard in Flight. It occurred to me on a flight from London to Barcelona that Shakespeare could have written this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England— with more authority had he occupied the window seat next to me instead of this businessman from Frankfurt. Of course, after a couple of drinks and me loaning him an earbud, he might become too preoccupied with Miles Davis at the Black Hawk at 36,000 feet above some realm or other to write a word. I imagine he'd enjoy playing with my wristwatch, the one with the tartan band, and when he wasn't looking out the window... He would study the ice cubes in his rotating glass. And he'd take a keen interest in the various announcements from the flight deck and the ministrations of the bowing attendants, all of which would be sadly lost on me, having gotten used to rushing above the clouds, even though 99% of humanity has never been there. Yet I am still fond of the snub-nosed engines, the straining harmony of the twin jets, and even that sensation of turbulence jostled about high above some blessed plot with the sound of crockery shifting in the galley, the frenzied eyes of the nervous passengers, and the bard reaching for my hand as we roared with trembling wings into the towering fortress of a thunderhead. 
Thank you so much for that. And that poem's from your book, The Rain in Portugal. And the whole the whole poem kind of turns on that line that when Shakespeare writes this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England, it is a, a kind of a drone view or a hot air balloon view as he looks down on earth. And Chaucer does this too occasionally. Um, he goes down and looks at this little spot of earth. Um, but I, th- I just thought he would be in better authority if he could actually be in an airplane and look down and see England or, or some realm or other. But So he became my uh, roommate there. I love that. It, it sounds like you could really imagine easily breaking the ice with Shakespeare if he sat next to you. and Breaking in the ice cube, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, is that your th- impression of him? Well, I think that would be one sort one source of wonderment for someone uh, from the early, like early 17th century who's mm. looking at a glass full of ice cubes, and this is a common practice. I mean, I remember um, Gal- Galway Cannell had a, has a poem called Oatmeal, and it's about having breakfast with uh, Keats, and they talk about the construction of Ode to a Nightingale and. And I encourage my students, I say, you know, you could go ice skating with Joan of Arc or, you know, go on a roller coaster ride with uh, Henry VIII. I mean, and, you know, in poetry, there's sort of this freedom from chronology and freedom from, <laughs> from a lot of the credibility, too. Well, I, I really like what this poem uh, does as an example of what so many of your poems do really well, that they start at this very definite point. It occurred to you on a flight from London to, to Barcelona. You, you tell us where you are and what's going on. And then we know where we are, but then you end at a very mysterious or a much, a much wider place, a, a point Z. Uh, you're very right about pointing out that the beginning of my poems usually um, are um, points of orientation. So I want the reader to know where, where we are. And the reason for that is that, that I want to disorient the reader as the poem goes along. And certainly by the ending, I think, I want the reader to end up in a rather odd and maybe somewhat disorienting place. But you can't disorient a reader unless you orient them first. Huh. And and the other thing I feel in this poem and all your poems is that it starts with this very specific place, but you're thinking, and the thought seems to build. It seems to have an organic growth, even if they're, especially if they're digressions or distractions or, or side roads, it still has this forward kind of momentum, um, which made me wonder if you know where you're going to end when you sit down to write. I, I don't know where I'm going to end. I, I think I maybe once or twice in my career of writing, I've done what Frost argued against, which is to, you know, start with an ending and then backfill. But um, to me, I, I want to find the ending, and that's the game of poetry for me. Is uh, part, much of the enjoyment uh, comes from solving that puzzle or figuring out where the poem is going to go. Now, the wastebasket, the writer's best friend, you might say, is uh, filled with poems that don't go anywhere or don't find an ending, fail to. So that's a big part of the curiosity that pushes the poem forward. And um, But I think it's most of the poems I start and spend time on will find an ending. And I think it's because from the very beginning, they're going somewhere. 
you mentioned that kind of forward role, that progression as the poem is uh, a sense in motion. And uh, because it's in motion, I would say it has a better chance. The more it's in motion, the better the chance of finding an ending, a place to stop, where I don't want to say anymore and I feel the reader doesn't want to hear anymore. Huh. I'm thinking back also to the beginnings in radio. We're taught that you have to draw people in in the first 20, 30 mm-hmm. seconds of any broadcast. And if they're confused at all or not intrigued or not hooked, then you lost them. And they just go to the next podcast or radio station or whatever. Is that how you think of poems too? I do. And I, I think uh, one of the things if I whenever I conduct a workshop, if there's a board there, I tend to write the words, the indifference of the reader. The readers are def- basically indifferent to your inner life, to your the trip you took with your uncle, to your memories, to your feelings. Um, the reader comes to the poem interested in poetry, not you. And so uh, that's where these seductive techniques come in, as you said, in journalism. So the reader needs some kind of bright, shiny object or uh, to, to be led into the poem, to be lured into the poem. Or the reader just needs to hear something that is undeniably true. So if you start a poem by saying, um, you know, it's it's Wednesday, it's raining, and the dog needs to go out or something like that, the reader can't deny that. So, And then once you get the reader in that way, the poem can be more challenging, more difficult, more even surreal. Uh, kind of a pet metaphor for that is the poem begins in Kansas and ends in Oz. And uh, poems I don't finish are often poems that begin in Oz without telling me how you got there. <laughs> so <laughs> it's. <laughs> I guess they could begin in Kansas and end in. I don't know, Missouri or something. Missouri, right. <laughs> well, that is, that's a, an unusual amount of consideration for a writer uh, to, to think about their reader in that way. I think for many writers, they don't. And I'm also thinking that the poems in your newest collection, they don't demand a lot uh, in terms of time from your, from your readers. They're, they're almost all under 10 lines, right? Oh, they're much, much shorter than that. The average is about four lines, and I think there are a couple of poems where I get kind of gabby, and they might go on to six lines. But I used to call them small, uh, small poems, and they um, they kind of end uh, as, as they begin. Um, in these poems, one eliminates a lot of things, like there's no room for landscape or memory or meditation or development or suspense or drama or even a theme. But what there is is what I call torque. You know, torque being a force that is applied through turning or twisting. And the poems just twist on themselves and create a moment of torque and then they're over. Let me read one for as an example. The title is English 243, The History of Egotism. You will notice, class, that Wordsworth did not write, Edward the Butcher's son wandered lonely as a cloud. Okay, I'm feeling <laughs> the torque there. Um, a couple of things. I So I read that. 
and laughed. And then I read it a couple more times. And the first thing I thought was the the funny thing is that Wordsworth didn't write that, but that maybe you would. You you would write <laughs> something like Edward the Butcher's Son did something highfalutin. Well, it's the it's it is a, a big moment in in English literature when when he wanders lonely as a cloud and then finds some daffodils as companions. I mean that is a good watermark in a way, the point at which the eye is foregrounded. Uh, And remember, in in 1798 or so, Wordsworth was kind of laughed at for writing poems that were merely based on personal experience. And uh, just as Rousseau, writing his confessions, a little before that, opens the confessions by saying, I'm about to do something that no one has ever done in the history of literature. I'm going to tell the story of my life and tell the truth about it. So autobiography was really non-existent. So uh, yeah, Edward the Butcher's Son would be the novel. <laughs> That's true. And now you're <laughs> you're 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 anticipating my other questions, which were: you taught college for so long, and you conduct lots of workshops, and I can just hear you saying something like this in a class <laughs> about Wordsworth. But maybe you're not this irreverent in a classroom. I don't know. Well, a lot of these poems are um, not very nice in a way. They come to me unbidden, really. They, they're like visitations. I don't really work on them. There's almost no revision. Um, they just roll out. And I've been doing them. I don't do a lot of them, but I've been doing this for years. But take this one. Uh, the title is Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Trouble was not his middle name. So, <laughs> I mean, I think that's hilarious, but... You can see that there was there wouldn't be much work involved, uh, like if you compare it to uh, the wasteland, for example. Why do you like these short poems now at this moment in your life or career? And does it have anything to do with COVID? Well, I don't think so. My well, my editor thought uh, I have a wonderful editor, David Ebershoff at Random House, and he, when I gave him the manuscript, he he took this as an interesting step in my in a literary development. I, on the other hand, thought it probably is the beginning of the end um, that I'm just going to write sh- shorter and shorter poems. <laughs> to the one then word. One word and then one letter. Flat, flat line. Uh, <laughs> and then a letter or two and that put a blanket over my knees and just put me out in the sun somewhere. But um, I've always liked short poems. It go- I mean, I, it certainly goes back to haiku and... Uh, I just love the uh, ability to write a, a very tiny poem, which is kind of it kind of is at the extreme, kind of the experimental extreme of how much condensation and compression um, a poem can withstand. One of the hallmarks of a poem is commonly thought of a poem's ability to, in say a sonnet, to express huge feelings and. Uh, and broad thoughts in a very confined space. And these poems that, you know, they are three or four lines long, really uh, pare that down to an intensely limited space. Well, let's get to a sonnet. Could we? Are you up for reading your poem sonnet? Always. (laughs) Yes, here it is. I mentioned Petrarch, who was who might as well be called the father of the sonnet. And uh, after then it was imported into uh, 
England and, as someone said, perfected and killed by Shakespeare. And, and Petrarch's inamorata, his love of his life, was Laura. Sonnet. All we need is 14 lines. Well, 13 now. And after this one, just a dozen to launch a little ship on love's storm-tossed seas. Then only ten more left, like rows of beans. How easily it goes, unless you get Elizabethan and insist the iambic bongos must be played and rhymes positioned at the ends of lines, one for every station of the cross. But hang on here while we make the turn into the final six where all will be resolved where longing and heartache will find an end, where Laura will tell Petrarch to put down his pen, take off those crazy medieval tights, blow out the lights, and come at last to bed. Now, I always think of the phrase iambic bongos when I read Shakespeare's sonnets now. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Um, you've written a lot of poems, I think, that gently kind of make fun of poets or, or poetry workshops or just the whole business. Does the poet with capital P image just annoy the hell out of you? Oh, yeah. It makes me itchy. Yeah, it's, uh, it makes my skin crawl. I suppose because it's, it's well, two reasons. I mean, it's publicly misunderstood, you know, so so horribly. I mean, most people never read poetry after after getting out of school, and they take with them all the kind of nightmare of, of having to either memorize or analyze. But also, it's internally, I think, it's attached to such kind of pretentiousness and egotism. It's certainly the most egotistic art form. And we end talking about Wordsworth's foregrounding the capital I. So I get, yeah, I'm very self-conscious about it still. And uh, I do have a lot of poems that, that mock the, the enterprise. But here, it takes on a beatnik flavor here with iambic bongos. And then Laura says, take off those crazy medieval tights, and baby, you know. Um, the real thing, the real comment on the sonnet is because it's affirmed and supported by the, the manners of courtly love, there's no sex. There's just uh, dating, pleading, blandishments, panting, the male poet suffering, basically, and asking, not for love, that would be too much to ask, but for pity. And he is imprisoned, His he's a ship lost at sea. He has simultaneous chills and fever. He has lovesickness. He's a prisoner of love, etc. And um, so here's here's saucy it's a hot Laura. mess, Billy. Yeah, here <laughs> you're good at this too. And here's saucy Laura who says, "Put down your pen, blow out the lights, and come to bed, baby. Come on." Um, so that's. It's anti-courtly. But it also, I mean, it also shows the woman as being realistic, sexual, impatient, and not needing the kind of flattery and panting that <laughs> all of these love poets are performing. Right. It really puts the fireworks that they they labor over in in uh, high relief there. And I... I <laughs> 
<laughs> it kind of blows my mind to think of how many poets like Shakespeare were expressing themselves in this really demanding form uh, about love without ever, or sex, without ever mm-hmm. intending to publish these things. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like it's, it's like solving multivariable calculus in your underwear after a hard day at the office. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's it's like uh, the cell where a nun would live or a monk would live. It's an enclosed space, and uh, as as this example is, but uh, I mean, the first line sets the tone. All we need is fourteen lines. Well, thirteen now, so uh, this is going pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Hang on here. We're, here's the six. Uh, here's the final six. Um, anyway, fun to write. Yeah, it seemed very fun to write, although it is very technical. I understand you made up a very complex poetic form yourself, the paradiddle. Well, just that I, I was going to—I was—Auden said there's nothing more hilarious than a badly written formal poem. And I thought I would go from that and I'd write a really bad sonnet. But then I wondered, well, how would that would be— how would people distinguish that from all the other bad sonnets that are being written? So I thought the only way to do this is to make up a form— and present it as a real form. And so I I did that, and I have a footnote uh, published with the poem that says it's a 14th century French form, and you have to use all these repeat words. The rules escalate to a point of uh, impossibility. Um, it was published in the, in the American Scholar when Joseph Epstein was the editor, and he knew uh, he had a sense of humor. But after he published it, he called me and he said they're, he's, they're getting letters from, you know, this is the the, uh, the magazine of the um, Phi Beta Kappa Society, Smarty Passes, and they're getting letters uh, complaining about how could you publish this awful paradox. And one guy this wrote This is the worst paradox I've ever read. This is the worst paradox I've ever read. So he asked me if I'd, Epstein asked me if I wanted to respond, and I said, sure, let's keep this rolling. And uh, there were a couple of options here, but I said, uh, I tried my best. I said, listen, the Paradell is just, it really is a mind-crushing poem, and this is the best I could do. And I said, it appears that you have a lot of time on your hands. Maybe you'd like to try it yourself, something like that. But I did make up a, a, a false form, and it, it was—it's kind of a like a, a harmless literary hoax. I hope to see it. The term in the Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetry and Poetics someday. Then I could I could die a happy man. It's in Edward Hirsch has a book called the Poet's Glossary, and it is in there. It hasn't hit the Princeton yet. Thus ends your career as a culture jammer. (laughs) Um, But a question about form. How do you think about line? Do you think about the shape of your line? Is it a sculptural uh, pleasure for you or puzzle? Well, later, yeah. uh, I try to write what what are called isometric lines. Those are basically lines around about the same length. And um, I don't have, I, I don't write in exact iambic, you know, talk is iambic. And I think I, having, you know, spent uh, decades reading iambic pentameter and tetrameter, you get, you kind of internalize that rhythm. But my lines are very uh, conservative in that I try to follow the grammar of the poem so that let's take, I mean, all we need is 14 lines. Well, 13 now. And after this one, just a dozen to launch a little ship on love storm-tossed seas. Then only ten more left like rows of beans. 
So you see every line is a syntactic unit or a grammatical unit. Generally, so I don't try trick lines, and I, I find them distracting, and I think you risk losing the credibility um, of the belief of the reader. If you say a line, if you have a line like, um, they looked out from the dock and saw a line break boat, it's just not worth waiting, you know, for a boat to to in the next line. It, yeah. So it's, if if the poem is chopped into lines that are violating the grammar and the logic of the poem, it just seems to add to uh, the confusion. Well, following up on this sonnet idea, you, you teach a lot and you teach sonnets. What do your students have the hardest time with or what have they had the hardest time with in the past? Well, if it's Shakespeare, they have a hard time with the language. I have a hard time with the, uh, not just with the these and thous, but with the density of the metaphors, figuring out the metaphors, figuring out what's being compared and, and why it is. It's just difficult to leave their own language and their, and their own culture. And I mean, of course, the job of the instructor is to unlock the poem and to make it seem, make to show the heart of the poem that Shakespeare is... Uh, I don't want to compare it to a contemporary, you know, rap song or country song or whatever, but I mean, the, the emotions are basically the same of the pain of separation and the joy of reunion and the um, adoration of the, of the female and or uh, not. loves, or not, or, yeah, and, <laughs> and loves frustrations. Um, it's, it, it's just dressed up in funny clothes. So how do you get them past that? And I'm thinking of your poem, Introduction to Poetry, uh, in which you say a lot of great things. And one of them is to drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out. Um, (laughs) Because this whole sacred Shakespeare thing is very hard for, or sometimes hard, to to get people to approach Shakespeare in in that playful, down-to-earth way, in, in a drop a mouse in a poem kind of way. So how do you get them to do that. And you have another great line in that poem. How do you get your students to walk inside the poem's room and feel the wall for a light switch? Well, you can see that it's walking into a dark room, (laughs) right? Well, I try to bring, at some point, I tried to bring my teaching of poetry as a professor in line somewhat with my experience of writing poems as a writer. And to that end, I would try to let them see that the poem is not something that was made in the Library of Congress or that a convention of teachers got together and put this poem together. It was actually written by a living man or a woman. And to that end, I I sometimes would bring in the first four lines of a Shakespeare sonnet, let's say, and not give them the rest of it. And then just imagine, well, here's Shakespeare. He's written these four lines. And Shakespeare at some point must have been at that point in in the creation of the sonnet where he had just four lines. Well, what's the next line? And to try to make them see that the the break the poem down like that so that you can see that here's a writer who's just he has nothing but one line at a time. He's working his way through the poem and figuring it out. And I kind of give them the rest of the poem gradually. 
so that the poem is not, we don't think about so much what the poem means, but how the poem progresses, how the poem finds its way through itself to an ending, how it rolls forward and how it stops. And you you can see there are points in a poem where there's a there's a switch or there's a uh, a softening of the address. There's many changes of uh, you know the barometric pressure changes or there's more humidity in the poem. There's a weather in the poem. You can see how a poem is moving in different directions and has sniffing toward an ending. And I think that's better than saying like what. What does the fir tree symbolize in the fourth stanza? That kind of takes takes the poem apart and takes the life out of it. And doing it this way it tries to maintain the life of the poem and make it uh, reveal it to be a creative act. It's great, though, that this exercise puts them in Shakespeare's chair. Uh, so he's just a guy writing a poem. It also reminds me of your poem, Mr. Shakespeare in which you seem really annoyed that people would ever have... <laughs> Don't just call him Shakespeare. Have you had students call him Mr. Shakespeare? Occasionally, yeah. I think it's it's a little more popular probably in middle school. I mean, they're just trying to be respectful and polite. And, and I think it, it, it occurs uh, more frequently in the South, as I, as I understand it, where, you know, children are, are taught to say sir and ma'am and mister. It's still hard, though, the language. I mean, do you have to be in a certain mood to read Shakespeare? And do you read the plays as, as well as sonnets? Uh, well, I have. I haven't read, probably haven't read all of them, but, but I've taught, you know, I've taught five or six of them uh, repeatedly, you know, Lear and Hamlet and, and, you know, the major tragedies, basically. So I'm not a Shakespearean, but I, I, en- I certainly enjoy teaching the sonnets. But you're not sitting around reading Pericles or King John. I am not. I, 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 that's another self that I aspire to the self that sits around reading Pericles. I might try that. Thank you. <laughs> I might I might dust I don't recommend my... Pericles. Maybe King John. <laughs> um, but you do teach Sonnet 73, uh, the one that begins that time of year, thou mayst in me behold, when yellow leaves are none or few do hang. Right. Um, and, and why that one? Is it a favorite of yours? And, and well, it's it's it be, as I get older, it becomes much more of a favorite. Um, well, it, it 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 I love the little irregular line there: when yellow leaves or none or few do hang, which should be logically yellow leaves or few or none do hang, right? Mm-hmm. Some leaves, few leaves, no leaves. But I think he says. Where yellow leaves or none or few do hang, he likes to say few and do together. Few do hang. He likes those vowels. And I think that's a lovely, uh, it's a tiny example of sound triumphing over logic and poetry. And it it has one of the most satisfying uh, couplets, I think. I don't have it in front of me. you, you will love me because I'm old, because there's not that much time to love me. And that's sort of a pathetic a wish in a way. But it seems it's also a kind of an older man talking to a younger woman. Yeah, it's very poignant that way. 
Uh, yeah. You're bringing me back to the idea of torque and torque in sonnet in those last in that couplet at the end. That's a big turn, and we only have a little more time. But let's—that means we have time for about ten more of your short poems. <laughs> right. <laughs> your choice. Anything you'd like to uh, say about them, and any poem oh, you'd okay. like to read, it would be a pleasure. Okay, I'll just read a, a, a little handful here. Uh, divorce. No more heavy ball. Just the sound of the drag chain with every other step. 3 a.m. Only my hand is asleep, but it's a start. And here's one called Carbon Dating. He tried it once as a last resort, but most of the women were a million years old. And then we have uh, one called New York Directions. It's down in the village between bleak and bleakest. And go on in the rain. You want to know the sound of one hand clapping? It's the same as the sound of the other hand holding the umbrella, only slightly louder. And one more? Uh, yeah, one more. Okay, motel parking lot. Saying goodbye is so sad, I don't even bother to turn around to see what it was you just threw at me. Did you ever want to be a late-night monologue writer? Oh, no, I'm too busy reading Pericles from here, that nonsense. <laughs> oh, Billy Collins, it's such fun and, a, and, um, and an honor. I'm so glad you had the time to do this. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Billy Collins' latest book of poetry, published by Random House, is called Musical Tables, and it's out now. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer, with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Evermore Sound in Orlando and Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at 3Cs Inc. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so that you never miss an episode. And consider telling a friend about the show. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library, home of the world's largest Shakespeare collection. The Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.